You're listening to the sermon podcast from Real Life Church Pullman, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. Hey, uh, we've been going through this series called A Sense of Wonder. And in this series, we've been just kind of really reconnecting and getting reminded of how awesome and amazing God is and and coming at it from some kind of fun ways, getting to tell some cool stories. We started off the series talking about childlike wonder and how important it is for us to reconnect with our kind of inner child and not to become childish in so much, but to reconnect with uh, a sense of childlike receptivity. And Jesus went on to say that like, unless you can become like one of these little children, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And so there's something really significant about um, kind of having a a ability to see things and accept them and receive them like a child. And and so that was the first one. And if you missed that, I would encourage you to jump online and go back and get and listen to that one. And then last week we talked about wonder in the detours. And the reality is all of us face detours in life, uh, literal ones and just ones that happen in our everyday world. And so when things don't go according to plan, when the career path you chose didn't map out or the relationship you thought for sure was the one or just everyday stuff gets in your way and all of a sudden you feel like, man, I'm, why do I feel like I'm not on the path that I thought my life was going on? I feel like I got rerouted. And we talked about how we can easily get um, hurried and distracted and annoyed and flustered and miss the wonder of God and the detours and and miss the fact that perhaps God is up to something amazing and purposely has us on the plan uh, that he does. And so uh, again, catch that from last week. Today, we're going to be talking about wonder in the hard times. All right. Now, this is, I wouldn't say the funnest of topics to talk about, but it's super real and it's super relevant because I think a lot of people that I talk to these days are experiencing hardships and challenges and things that are going on in their life and in the lives of people they care about in a, in a way that um, I think you're going to really relate to as we unpack this a little bit. The thing that's interesting about hardships and when really terrible things happen is it has a way of like marking us and, and, and kind of putting a little stamp in time for us. I know, uh, I remember my mom telling me she knows exactly where she was. She could remember where she was, what she was wearing, where she was at when she heard about the assassination of President Kennedy. I think a lot of us have the same kind of reaction for when we remember the September 11th events. Like I know where I was at, what, where I was, the room I was in, the color of the carpet, the, the, what the entertainment center looked like, how the room was set up. Like I can remember it just instantly like it was yesterday. And then there's tons of days. I don't remember what I did last Tuesday, right? It doesn't, it doesn't stick, but somehow tragedy and hard things stick They kind of glue in our memory banks. And thankfully, not all hardships and hard times are quite that devastating. Most of them are a lot more mundane. They're a lot lot more of the just regular old stuff of like trials and tribulations that we're facing in, in relationship stuff, financial stuff cars breaking down, things just not going uh, according to plan, things in relationships with your spouse or with your kids or with an employer, right? Like most of the hardships we face are more day-to-day stuff that that just kind of grind on us. And the truth is there are literally countless types of hardships that people go through 
countless different ways that we experience hard times. As many people as there are on the planet, there are a variety equal of hard ways that we could go through. But what's interesting to me is even though there's all this diversity, there's all these different ways that we can uniquely go through hard times, there's something that we typically share in common. One of the things I think that we oftentimes share in common is that when we're going through hard times, more often than not, we all come at it with the same response to the hard times. No matter how different they are, we all come at it with this response of asking why. Why? Why is this happening to me? Why is this going on in my life? Why did this have to happen? Why did that happen to somebody that I care about? Why did that happen over there? Why does this always happen to me? Why can't I catch a break, right? Like we respond to hardships and difficult seasons in our life by asking why. And I think one of the things I, uh, as I was prepping for this and learning and digging in um, and kind of really digging in and prepping for this, one of the things I realized is that the Bible is full of stories that uh, have people going through hard times. That's not a big secret, right? Like we, we all sort of know if you've spent any time in scripture, you know there's some hardship involved in the pages of that book. But one of the things that's interesting is that I didn't realize how much I have in common and how much you have in common with some of the kind of anchor people of our faith. Because when they went through hard times, most of them did the same thing that I do and the same thing that you do. They wrestled with trying to understand why. Why are these hard things happening? And so I want to dig in and take a look at a couple of stories that maybe you're familiar with, maybe you've heard a little bit about them, um, maybe you know them inside out and upside down, but I want to challenge us to take a fresh look at them. Uh, there's a story in Exodus that we, uh, a lot of people are familiar with, with a guy named Moses, and Moses uh, encountered God in the wilderness. And when he encountered God in the wilderness, God revealed himself to him and said that he was going to give Moses a special assignment. He was going to send him on mission to go toe to toe with the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the most powerful guy in the land at the time. And that he was going to have Moses go and deliver a message for him on behalf of God to tell Pharaoh to let God's people go to the wilderness for three days to offer sacrifices and to worship. And as if God could sort of sense Moses's reluctance. Like before Moses could even sort of tell him why this was not that great of an idea, God did something with Moses. He said, he essentially said, I want to reassure you that I'll go with you. I'm not just expecting that the Pharaoh is going to take your word for it. And so he says, grab that staff that you've got right there and throw it down on the ground. And so he does that and he throws the staff down on the ground and the staff turns into a snake And then he tells him to reach down and grab it by its tail, at which point all of us should be really glad that it was Moses that had this job and not Terry Harwood. Because Terry Harwood, there's a rule that he has. Snakes are not allowed in the same county as Terry. And so if this was Terry, the whole Exodus story would have ended right there when it was like it turned into a snake. There would have been no reaching down. He would have been on a run. 
right? So we're, we're grateful that it was Moses. Moses reaches down. He grabs the snake by the tail. He picks it up. It turns back into a staff. And then God tells him to do something else. He says, take your hand, put it inside your cloak and pull it out. And when he pulled it out of his cloak, it's white as snow with this horrible skin disease. And he says, put it back in your cloak and then pull it back out. He pulls it back out. It's vibrant and healthy and healed. And God says to Moses, I give you these signs so that when you go to Pharaoh and deliver this message to let my people go, you can have these signs as evidence that you're speaking on behalf of God. And if in case those messages, those signs don't reveal him, uh, don't reveal me to him and like he doesn't believe you, then I want you to grab a bucket of water from the Nile River take the bucket of water and dump it out on the ground right at Pharaoh's feet and then watch as I turn that water to blood right before his eyes. Well, Moses is a bit of a realist. And so these signs are great signs, but Moses is a bit of a realist. And so right out of the gate, He's thinking this thing through like, I don't know. I can think of a lot of hard things that are going to happen if I try this. And so Moses starts asking why questions like, cool signs, cool, like the snake thing's amazing, but why me? Right? It's all down to understanding why. Why me? Don't you know how much I stutter? Don't you much? And they have this conversation and it ends with Moses being obedient. Moses goes, he goes to Pharaoh, he does the stuff that God instructed him to do. We know it doesn't go very well. In fact, it didn't go well at all because Pharaoh actually starts mocking Moses and Aaron to their face. And in front of them, he actually turns up the heat on God's people. Not only did he not let him go, but he just started to make their life more miserable. And so they were required to make a certain number of bricks every day. And, and Pharaoh said, not only are you going to re- still be required to make the same amount of bricks every day, do the same amount of work every day, but now some of the things that previously were provided for you, you're not, we're not going to provide them anymore. You're going to have to go get them on your own. So you've got to go get the straw on your own. So you've got to do the same amount of work plus some. Well, God's people were not really excited about Moses and Aaron after that. They looked to Moses and Aaron and they basically shouted out to him and said, great, you've, you've essentially given Pharaoh a sword and, and put it in his hand and now you've given him a reason to kill us. Moses is struggling. And so he goes back to God with this whole list of why questions. Exodus 5.22 says, Moses went back to the Lord and protested, why have you brought all this trouble on your own people, Lord? Why did you send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh as your spokesman, he has been even more brutal to your people and you've done nothing to rescue them. But instead of answering Moses' questions about why, God does something pretty cool and something a little unexpected. Instead of answering why, God responds with who. He, he reminds Moses who he is. He says that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's a, a God that made a covenant with his people. He's a God that hears his people. He's a God that listens to the cries of his people. And he's a God that will keep his promise and rescue his people. And then God do, goes on uh, 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 an outward offense 
to absolutely make it unequivocally clear who he is to his people and to all of the Egyptians. And God starts to reveal who he is in some pretty miraculous ways. God starts off by saying, like, he's going to reveal that he's a God who can overwhelm his enemies with something as weird as frogs and tiny as a little locust. That, that he's a God who holds your wealth and livelihood in his hands and in a blink he could eradicate the, the wealth and livelihood and income from his enemies and all of their livestock is killed. And then he goes on to reveal that he's a God who holds their very health in his hands and in a snap the enemy Egyptians are covered with sores and boils and open wounds but the Hebrews, God's people, are not their well, God goes on to reveal that he's a God who can actually stop the next generation from rising up to become like their parents, their evil parents. And in a blink, he actually takes out the next generation, the firstborn of all the Egyptians, but saves those of his people. And God reveals that he's a God that keeps his promises and he rescues his people from Egypt. And then as he rescues them from Egypt, he takes them on this Exodus journey through the wilderness to the promised land. And this journey turns out to be way more about God revealing who he is to his people Then it was answering all their why questions, because let me tell you, if you've ever read the story, which a lot of you have, there's a lot of why questions. They do a whole bunch of grumbling. They do a whole bunch of, why are we here? Why did you take us here? Why did we have to go over here? Why is it so hot? Why are we so hungry? Have you ever had a two or three-year-old when they start to learn how to talk and then they get to that little spot where they learn that amazing word, why? Right? And you're like, and they're like, and at first it's so cute. You're like, Whoa. And you're thinking, they just want to learn. And, and they're like, why? And you give them the, and you, <laughs> naively, you answer them like it matters. And you answer them, to which they respond with, why? And then you answer them, why? Right? And then you do this thing until you start to go, oh, wait a minute. Right? Like, that's sort of this picture of God and his people in this Exodus story. It's like, why, 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 why? And God just keeps going, who, who, who? He reveals who he is. It's this whole journey of revealing who he is to his people. And I think this is really where we start to uncover the, the wonder of God in hardships, in hard times, is because one of the things we learn is that both in our own experience and in the experiences of people we see in God's word is when hard things happen, people respond with why. And we start to learn that the way God answers people's why questions is with who. And we start to experience and get reminded of the wonder and awesomeness of God that that there's something powerful that's going on here that we're starting to get a picture and starting to learn a lesson that, that knowing who God is is so much more valuable than knowing why things are going on in our lives. Knowing who God is is so much more important than understanding why. Bless you. Knowing who 
is starting to reveal the wonder of God. And, and I want to go through a couple of different stories because that's just one example. And I want to help us kind of maybe see some different perspectives. When we think about uh, stories in the Bible that talk about somebody going through a hard time, the Bible's not short on hardship stories. But when we think about like, man, somebody had it really rough, like they had the hardest of hard times, almost always one guy comes to mind. You guys know who I'm talking about? You ever heard of Job? You don't ever want to be following in Job's footsteps, not for, not for what the type of person he was, but for the kind of stuff he had to endure. And so I want to kind of just share this. This is a, this is a difficult passage. This is a difficult book to read. It's, it's long. It's in-depth. There's a lot of different people and characters and conversations going on. And I think sometimes people can get a little bit intimidated and we, we lose the message through the trying to dig into the scripture. And so I want to just kind of paraphrase and tell you the story of Job so that we make sure that we get the message and we don't miss it in all of the details. And so Job is a story about a guy named Job. And uh, I know, I'm really good at stories. And he's from a land called Uz, and Job is really wealthy. He's got a lot of livestock, a lot of cattle. He's got a big family. Life is going really well for him. It says in the scriptures that he's described as a man who is blameless and upright. And if you're thinking about ways you'd like to be described, those are a couple of good, good ways, right? Like, how awesome would it be described as blameless and upright? says that he was a guy that did everything he could to avoid doing evil. He cared about his actions and how he treated other people. And so that's the scene at the beginning of the story of Job. And then we enter into this uh, part of the book of Job where it says that Satan one day went to heaven. Satan has a conversation with God, and they're talking about Job. And he's highlighting to God how Job is so good, and Job blesses God and praises God. But the only reason he does that is because God has made Job's life so awesome. And Satan basically says, listen, if, if we were to strip all that stuff away from Job, and he didn't have all those blessings, and his life wasn't so good, you just watch. He would curse you to your face. And in a response by God, that makes no sense to any one of us in this room. This is a complicated thing that's like, it's on everybody's list of when we get to heaven, explain to me the Satan and Job thing. There's something going on there I don't understand. God responds to Satan, and he tells Satan, okay. You can intervene in Job's life, and you can take away any of his wealth, any of his possessions, any of his stuff, but you can't touch him personally. The very next day, Satan wakes uh, no time at all. And so Satan goes and starts intervening and doing horrible things in the midst of Job's, Job's life. And then it says messengers start coming to Job, one after the other. And every one of these messengers is bringing Job horrible, horrible news. News about his livestock, about his, uh, his uh, possessions and lands and buildings and his children. And, he's, and they're telling him that they've all been either killed by enemy invaders or uh, taken, uh, like, wiped out from natural disasters, like everything's gone. As you can imagine, Job is overwhelmed with grief. It says that he rips his clothes and, and puts ashes on his head. It's this sign of mourning in biblical times. And he goes into this deep, deep mourning and grief. And, and as you can imagine, just gut-wrenching misery. But in his prayers, 
he blesses God. We get another glimpse back into this conversation between Satan and God, and Satan goes back to God and says, he says, okay, well, he hasn't caved in yet, but let me have at him personally, and I will prove to you that there's not a man alive who won't do anything to save his own life. And so again, God grants Satan permission to intervene with Job, and the very next day, Job's covered in sores and boils and open wounds, and he is physically miserable on top of all of these horrible things that have gone on in his life. He is, he, he's just unbearably in emotional pain and physical pain. And to the point where his wife looks at him, his, and his own wife says, just, just call out to God and curse God already and just die. Like, like, it would be better for you at this point if you just gave it up. She, I mean, she's basically just going like, are, like, you're so stubborn. Like, can't you see how bad it is? Just tap already. Just give up. Give in. Like, call it off. And Job won't do it. He won't curse God. About this time, some friends of Job show up, three different guys, and they come and they do, uh, they just sit and they mourn with him for seven days, it says. They, they literally just sit with him. They, they recognize the amazing hardship that he's going through, the incredible grief that he's experiencing. And like good friends, they just sit for a whole week. Nobody talks. They just grieve with their friend. And at the end of a week, Job opens up and starts to have a conversation with his friends. And that conversation goes from concerned friends mourning with him, being with him, caring about him, to starting to try and understand why. Why would this be happening to you? Why would God do this to you? Why would God allow this? Why is all this going on? And it goes on and on and on and on to the point where they're trying to decide there must be some hidden sin. You must have done something to offend God. Like, how could you possibly have this happen to you unless? And they they are obsessed with understanding why. Job reaches a point in this conversation ongoing back and forth where he's just exhausted and tired and, and and he doesn't curse God, but he gets to the point where he actually curses the day that he was born. He's, he's just sitting there in his misery, misery, like looking at his life, his circumstances, the stuff that's going on to him and around him and the, the accusations from his friends. And he's like, God, if this is all my life was going to lead to, then the day I was born is the worst day in the history of the world if this is where it brought me. I wish I would have never been born. And he's just hurting and in agony. And his friends continue and his friends continue to the point where finally Job gets so frustrated with his friends, he actually just finally calls out and he's like, listen, if you guys were a bunch of doctors, you would be a a bunch of hacks. You couldn't help anybody if your life depended on it is the kind of doctor you would be. Because you just talk and you talk and you talk. And I don't know if you realize, but this is not helping me. 
But they don't relent. They keep trying to figure out why. And then Job, he just keeps trying to plead for his innocence and, and talk to them about the kind of life he's lived, the righteousness that he's lived, the, the way that he's carried himself, the way that he's served God and honored God. And so he's vying for his innocence and they're vying for what could he have possibly done wrong to deserve this. And it's a culture where if good things are happening to you, then it's obvious that God must love you. And if bad things are happening to you, then that means that God is out to get you. And all of us in our modern world with our advanced thinking, we look back and we say, oh, how silly is that? Nobody thinks like that anymore. Until you start to think about some of the thoughts that you have. Until you you start to look at some of your friends, you all know the friend or the coworker that seems like everything always goes right in their life. And you wrestle with a little bit of internal jealousy because it's like they don't seem like they're all that perfect of a person, but it's like everything they touch turns to gold. Financially, they get ahead. Relationship stuff seems to get ahead. Like somehow they got that car or that house or that inheritance. And and you're just like, how in the world is it that some people get where they get? Like how does life get so easy for some people? And what you don't understand is that the root of that line of thinking Underneath the surface is a conversation that's kind of going on in your, in your soul between you and God going like, how come you're so good to them and not me? And the same old things are the same old things. When good things are happening to people, we're wondering why God is blessing them. And when bad things are happening, we wonder what they did wrong just like Job's friends. And about this time in the story with Job, another guy shows up, another friend of his. He's a younger guy. And this guy comes in. And and now what he does is he tells Job, you know what I think the problem is? The problem is all this time with all this hardship and everything going on, the problem is you've been spending so much time trying to vie for your innocence that I think you forgot maybe what God was trying to show you here, what God was trying to reveal to you about where you were off and where you were wrong, and you've been so focused on trying to prove yourself. And so then he goes down the same old slippery slope of trying to understand why. Why is God doing those things to Job? And after what feels like probably an eternity to Job of suffering and frustrating conversations with friends and defending himself against these accusations and speculations and assumptions, finally, God enters the conversation. And the way that he enters the conversation gives us this picture, I think, of like maybe what it might have looked like. It says that, that God enters the conversation and reveals himself to Job in a whirlwind. I get this picture in my mind when I read this story and I imagine it playing out of God sort of just hanging back like a parent does when all the kids are just can't seem to figure it out and you're going to wait and see if they can like clean up their own act, if they can like negotiate and make peace and solve their thing and you're kind of just holding back to see like is this going to work, is it not going to work, I want to give them an opportunity to do the right thing and you sort of just hold back and hold back and it's like God's doing that with them and, and, and maybe even holding his breath until he's just like, Job. And here's what he tells the Job. Job, stand up. He tells him, stand up, get ready, brace yourself. He says, You've been at, you guys have been asking a lot of questions. It's time for me to ask you some questions, so get ready. 
And here comes God to bring in some questions. But what's interesting is this whole time, all they're trying to figure out is why, 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 why? And God enters the scene and all he does is answer with who? He, he comes in and he says, he says, who? And he's answering, he's asking these questions and they're all rhetorical questions. They're, they're designed to reveal to Job who God is and how powerful he is and how probably little Job has been thinking about who God is and how powerful God is. He says, who developed the blueprints for the earth? He asks him, who laid the cornerstone and, and poured the foundations for creation? He says, who carved the canyons to channel the rain? Uh, who keeps count of the clouds? God goes on and asks him, who ensures even the baby birds are well fed and who sets wild donkeys free? And, and you see the way that God responds to Job's wise and all of the wise being asked in this whole entire scene, the way God responds to him is with who, who he is. And it's starting to do something in Job. It's starting to shift Job's perspective from this self-focused, inward focus to a, a different focus. God keeps going on. Have you ever commanded the morning? Do you know where light dwells? And it's like Job's eyes start to just open up to creation all around him. He goes from downcast, self-focused, defensive, trying to worry about his situation and his exact circumstances, all of the pain that he's experiencing, all of the whys from all of his friends, and all of a sudden God enters the scene and Job starts to look up and, and he gets to wonder at the creation of God all around him. He gets to start to be reminded of who God is and how amazing God is and how powerful God is and how, how God is so beyond what he could comprehend or understand. And, and this shift starts to take place in Job. And at the end of this story, as God comes into it, it's like all of the why questions Job had sort of just like melt into a distant memory. And what comes out of Job's mouth at the end of all this is just this testimony, this like statement this declaration of, of who he knows God is. And it's like something that Job knew all along. It wasn't like this new revelation. But he was so off track in his pain and his hardship, and he was so def in defense mode and self-focused mode and trying to wade through the whys of his hard times that, that he just got off the path. And, and so at the end of all this, he basically just makes this statement as like, who am I to question who God is or, or what God's up to? Who, who am I to, to wonder or ask why of God, essentially? He's like, nobody can come against God's plans. Nobody can thwart God's plans. Nobody can change God's plans. Like, and he just gets in a, back in a right view of who God is and who he is in relation to God. And it's like when he reconnects and gets refocused on who God is, all of a sudden the story starts to shift and God meets him in his darkest of days and his hardest of times and he doesn't leave them there and he carries Job forward out of that. And he has some words for his friends and you can go back and read that part. It doesn't go too well. Job wasn't, or God wasn't real supportive of Job's friends. And it's, it's not just 
Job. It's not just Old Testament stuff where people encounter God answering with who. It happens throughout the New Testament. It happens with Jesus himself. If there's a a really amazing conversation that happens in the New Testament, it happens north of the Sea of Galilee, near the temple to a God called Pan. In the culture, it was known as the gateway to hell, where this temple was located. We looked at it a few weeks ago in one of the messages. We touched on where this place was and some of the history. And the conversation that happens there is between Jesus and his disciples. And he's, he's talking with them. And, and I think it's really interesting to see what Jesus didn't ask them because he didn't ask them there in that place. He didn't say, Hey, why do you guys think I brought you up here? He didn't say that. He didn't say, why do you guys think I'm doing what I'm doing? He didn't say, why do you think I don't do this? He didn't ask them any why questions. You know what Jesus did ask them? Is he sat there with his disciples and he asked them, Hey guys, who do people say that I am? To a group of young men that have been following Jesus and been trying to wrestle with, why is he doing things the way he's doing? Why isn't it going faster? Why haven't we overtaken Rome yet? Why haven't, well, there isn't, where's the revolution that we thought was going to ha- happen when this king and this Messiah comes? That, why are we still suffering? Why, like, what, why is it not good yet? Why do we not know who's going to be in charge? Why do we not know who's going to be the most important when we get there? Like, they have all kinds of why questions. Jesus takes them up on the side of the hill in one of the most famous conversations we can ever look back at, and he he says, who? He's like, guys, I need you to get zeroed in on this. What really matters is who. He says, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're another famous prophet, or maybe you're just a really important rabbi. Like, like, and then he goes, okay, but let's cut to the chase. Who do you guys say that I am? To which Peter says, well, you're the Messiah. You're the Savior of the universe. You're the Christ. And it's like Jesus goes, hang on, guys. Like, don't miss this. That right there, what you just said, what you just said right there, that's it. That's the thing. That, like the fact that you responded with who God is, and it was true. You said who God is. That right there, that we can work with. That we can build a church on. That we can take the world over with. That all of this going on right here at this temple and all of this enemy infiltration and all of the pagan worship and the garbage and the crud going on in the world around us, none of that can stand a chance if people know this, who God is. He's like, that? Come on. And it's not just the disciples and Jesus. Later, we see even Paul. Paul talks to Timothy. We get this glimpse into Paul's story about how important knowing who is and not getting lost and hung up on the why. In, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, Paul's basically testifying a little bit to Timothy telling some of his story, says, God chose me to be a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of this good news. He says, that's why I'm suffering here in prison, but I'm not ashamed of it, for I know the one in whom I trust, and I am sure that he's able to guard what I have entrusted to him until the day of his return. So Paul here is talking about the fact that he's not hung up on why he's suffering. 
right? Paul's a guy that could have asked a lot of why questions. He got beat up a lot. He got cast aside by his own people. He got called a heretic. He got made false accusations made about him left and right to the point like that lies about him, put him in prison for things that he didn't say or didn't do. And here he is in prison writing to his younger uh, disciple saying, hey, listen, it's important that you understand this, that like, I'm not, I'm not in here stressing out about why I'm suffering. I'm not laying awake at night trying to solve the why. I got no anxiety over it. I got no worry. I got no stress about it. And you want to know why? You want to know why it's not spinning me out? It's because I know who I put my trust in. I know who I serve. And then he goes on to say this cool thing. like, And I also have this peace, even while I'm in here, that, that all the people that I've ministered to, all the, the churches that we've started, the people that have got started up in, in faith, that are brand new in the faith, like I could sit in here and stress about, could somebody come along and take them away? Could somebody like you know uh, mess up their faith and get them off track because they're babies in the faith? I could sit in here and stress about even them. But even that, I not only do I trust the God in whom I know, I trust that he actually can take care of them and guard them until I can get back to him. And maybe I won't, but I still am not spun out on all the whys because I know who God is and I know whom I put my trust in, right? Like there's this amazing picture and we just get reminded over and over and over again that when we're in the midst of hardships, when hard things are going on in our life, when things are happening in our circumstances, school, marriage, money, relationship, car stuff, family stuff, all of the stuffs that all of us go through, our first response is to go like, why, right? For me, this has been a real learning experience and, and kind of eye-opening to me. I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this. Like maybe sometime you bought like a red Toyota Corolla or whatever your car was, right? And then you noticed after like a week after you bought it that everybody has one. Yeah. You're like, whoa, I had no idea that half the population had red Toyota Corollas or whatever, right? Like your thing. That's sort of been how God's been with me on this is like as God has been revealing to me how significant this issue is, is like how obsessed we are as people with understanding why. We have to figure it out. We have to solve it. We have to know. Like when, and, and God just wants us to stop trying to solve it and answer all the whys and just keep coming back to who. All of a sudden I'm realizing and as I reflect and look on my own life, man, I ask a lot of whys. And I didn't realize it. Like everybody's got a red car. I ask a why all the time. So I want you guys to grab your sermon notes right now, okay? On your sermon notes, there's going to be some questions, and I want to look at them with you. One of the things we do as a church is not only do we gather together to worship together um, and to dig into God's word and learn together, but we also try to uh, challenge and empower and equip you to leave here and wrestle with what you're learning, chew on it, digest it, and actually start applying it. And so some of the things that we'll do as a part of our sermons is we'll add these questions or thoughts in here. The intent is that you take it away and you take what you learned here, you start to digest it personally, personally learn and wrestle with the stuff, not just say, I heard somebody else say it, like you wrestle with it. You 
work through the text. And, and these are some things that are designed to help you dig into God's word and wrestle with the things that you're learning today. So the first one is this. Do you tend to focus on the why in the midst of life's challenges? So if you're a person that like, you just have to understand why. When, 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 when you don't know why, it's just eating at you and driving you crazy and you keep coming back to it. You're, you're a problem solver, right? Like a dog on a bone, you just can't let it go until you try to figure out why. And if, if you're that person, and if you're not sure if you're that person and the person next to you is nudging you, then that means you're that person. And you know that's a tendency you have then it's important to be aware of it because like, how long do you want to camp out in a life like Job and his friends? How soon would you like God to enter into your conversation? Do you want to just kind of keep trying to figure it all out on your own? Or are you ready to like let God in on it and be reminded who God is? The next one says, are you willing to adjust your focus to who God is in your hard times? And that's just it. That's what we're learning that the wonder of God is that when we're willing to reconnect with who he is, be reminded of who he is, he steps in the middle of the hardest stuff we're going through, the stuff that makes no sense, that we can't understand, that we can't unpack, and he carries us through it in a way that's so much more valuable than trying to figure out why. The next one says, how often do you reflect back on who God has been in your life in the past? Some people are good at journaling. Some people are not. And they tend to be in very diverse camps, right? Like you either journal or you never have journaled. Some people are Bible study people. They're like, whatever the newest one is. And it's like, there's not enough room on the page to fill up all their stuff. And then there's people that like, I've seen a Bible study on a shelf somewhere, right? Like we, they tend to be in different camps. What's powerful about being in the camp of like stretching yourself and getting into Bible studies and writing stuff out and journaling and talking to between you and God, sharing stuff and actually like having to hit, have your thoughts hit paper is that you can go back and you can reflect on what you were going through and the hard times that you were going through and who God revealed himself to be during those times. And that's powerful stuff to help you remember who God is. There's a story in scripture that is probably like one of the most brilliant anchor stories of a guy getting to know who God is and in a way that he could always go back and look at it. Abraham with his son Isaac got put in a really difficult situation. One of the hardest days of his life and a day that made no sense and was so hard to explain and he just walked into it with faith like you wouldn't believe because he he just trusted God and he didn't understand how it was all going to work out. And in the end, what Abraham walked away with is this knowledge of who God is that is so concrete and so physically real to him that you could not convince him of something else about God if his life depended on it. There is no way that you will ever convince Abraham that God is not a God who provides. And you know what? When Abraham's going through hard times, when things are tough, and when he can't make the car payment, when he can't make the mortgage payment, when he's not sure if the stimulus check is coming through, right? All of your junk that we're going through. And when you have an Abraham-type story, like what does he always know? God's a God that provides. And when you're struggling with like today stuff, 
finance stuff, health stuff. It, it, it's a lot easier to go back and to be anchored in who God is when you have those stories where you just know because you experienced and saw and God revealed himself to you. So it's good to look back. The last thing is this, is if Jesus asked you, who do you say that I am? How would you answer? So if you think about that story, if you were sitting out there with the disciples and you were on the side of the hill with them and we managed to get Peter to be quiet for a second, that would have been a miracle thing. If we managed to get him to be quiet for a second and Jesus actually asked you, who do you say that I am? How would you answer? How would you answer? Yeah. Because the way you answer... is going to reveal who you think God is. And, and when you know who God is, that's something that God can build his church on. That's something that God can carry you through the hardest of times with. That's something that God will build a family on, that will build a, a legacy on. That's something that God will build our church and our community on is when we declare who God is. There's nothing that can come against that. And hard times, they're not less hard but there's something miraculous about how we're able to go through them when we know who God is every week as a church we take communion together and it's we do that so that we remember who God is and we don't get far from remembering who God is. And so if you got uh, one of these communion cups when you came in, go ahead and grab it out. And for those of you that are watching online with us, grab your communion stuff. This is one of the cool things that we can do as a family, whether we're in person or at home and watching from online, wherever you're watching from, where we can spend a, a moment in time and just be totally connected as a body of Christ, doing the same things together. Every week we take communion because we remember who God is. We remember that he's a God who will go to great lengths to make a way for us to have salvation. We remember that he's a, a God that was willing to pay the ultimate price so that we can have forgiveness for our sins. We remember that he's a God that steps in the middle of our stuff and our hard times and he cares. They live the life very much like the one we live. And so every week we take an opportunity to take communion. We remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. And he said that this bread represents his body, which was broken for us. And so we'll remember the body of Christ as we take the bread. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and he said, this cup represents a new covenant. That covenant was sealed with the shed blood of Christ, and so we remember the blood of Christ as we take the cup. Will you stand with me and let's pray together as a family. Man, Lord, we love you. You are such a good God. God, thank you for revealing yourself to us over and over and over again through the scriptures, through your spirit, through your son through our community, through our lives, in and around us. God, I pray that uh, today and this week that you would just 
point us all to scripture, to memories, to times where we get reminded who you are. Help us to adjust our focus, to pay way less attention to trying to figure out why things are going on and try to remember who you are. And God, just be with us in the midst of the hard stuff. So we love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us at rlcpullman.com and by connecting with us on Facebook. Until next time, have a great week.